Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. This will work. It perhaps has slightly more of a, a discussional study um, with you taking part as well. Is that um, hoping for too much? Um, who said yes? That was Ken. Well, at least I'm, I'm glad that there are, what, between 40 and 50 who aren't still totally obsessed by football. And um, either of that, or you've got video machines and a lot of self-control or something. Um, but we're, for the benefit of those that... Um, are not regularly with us, we're in the middle of a series, or the, the early part of a series, on 1 Corinthians, which we call Repairing a Broken Church. And we've reached chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I think if you want one of the church Bibles, um, all you do is, our system is put your hand up, I don't know whether there's anyone who would like one, but it's on page, I looked this up specially, wasted effort, by the oh yeah, Julie, in her spectacles, I've never seen this. Uh, page 1063, I think it is. Um, but somebody will correct me. And then I'm going to ask a number of questions of you, then I'm going to comment a bit, and I'm going to ask some more questions, and this is a way of making quite sure that you, you stay with the passage and teach yourself. Uh, I have to perhaps apologise to those who are going to listen to the tape. Um, I'll try and make sure that you get everything, all the bits and pieces of wisdom from around the room, uh, repeated down this wire. 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, oh, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I lay the foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, or silver, or costly stones, or wood, or hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, 
and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burnt up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Don't deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. I heard recently of a Bible college principal um, who said that almost all his students in, in the first year on arrival confessed two things. They confessed firstly that they were largely ignorant of the Bible and they confessed secondly a complete inability to change their mind on anything theological. You can see, can't you, that that is, is a recipe for catastrophe in the church. If we don't know what the book says, but we have an inability ever to change our mind about anything that we think, I mean, you might as well assume that you, you start off the Christian life with a complete package of correct understanding of theology and life and eternity, uh, and that that will do you forever, and plainly it isn't true. I can remember being profoundly struck by what I take to be the core, the central truth of this chapter. I'd been a Christian for years. I knew about salvation by grace. I'd grown up in a Christian home. I was already preaching the gospel. And then suddenly this chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians began to dawn on me. I think I had already, I was either at college or just soon after college, preaching the gospel with another team of folk in India. And those verses from 10 onwards, that next paragraph, I can remember just so clearly it blitzing me and changing motivations in, in my life. Now, let's begin with the first four verses. Paul lays three charges at the door of the Corinthians. What are they? It charges them with three things. 1 Corinthians 3, the first four verses. These questions are not hard, so... Sorry? And what was the third one? Quarreling. Um, well, let me, let me start by asking you, what is worldliness? What is your definition of worldliness? People who go behind the bike sheds and smoke and um, are caught in cinema queues. I can remember the leader of a very well-known mission in this area 
who confessed to me that he never goes to the cinema in Birmingham, where he is well known, but he comes down to Leamington. <laughs> is that worldliness? That sort of stuff? What is the definition here in these verses of worldliness? It is that there is jealousy and quarrelling among you. We might think that worldliness is focused on this world in the sense of salary and possessions and entertainment. Paul's definition is you are worldly if you are a quarrelsome, faction-minded person within the church. So I want to take all those together and say that worldliness is one of the things that he charges them with. And the quarrelling and the jealousy are symptoms of worldliness, because that, it seems to me, is what he's saying in verse 3. You are still worldly, worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? But I detect two other things that he also charges them with. Childishness. As Christians, they should have grown up more. Spiritual immaturity. Yes, thank you. And the evidence for that is what, Grant? In terms of uh, what, what is the milk as opposed to the solid food? They've got no hunger for anything that is at all demanding or stretching in their teaching. They just want again and again to go through the simple ABC stuff. The writer to the Hebrews had made the same point, hadn't he? His concern for the Hebrew Christians that they were able to go over, he, he talks about six basic fundamentals. He says, I actually long to talk to you about Melchizedek, <laughs> and about the high priesthood of Christ, and about some of the intricacies of, of how the Gospel has fulfilled some of those patterns that we can see in the Old Testament. But he said, I can't do it, because you're still stuck at the childish level. That is a challenge to us. So they're childish, they're worldly, and a third charge, He's quite blunt. There's a third thing that he charges them with in, in these four verses. Acting like mere human beings. But are they human beings? Why should he expect any more of them? <laughs> They're Christians. Thank you, Chris. What does that mean? Why sh what more should they show? if they are Christians, than if they were not Christians in their behaviour. The fruit of the Spirit, and it has said just at the end of the previous chapter, we have the mind of Christ. As you folks are not actually behaving like Christians. You're showing no spiritual discernment, no spiritual character, there's no love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc., no evidence of the mind of Christ among you. You're actively behaving in the way you conduct your affairs and, and, and how you sort out your issues. You're behaving no differently from unbelievers. It's push and shove an argument and one person pushes themselves forward and, and so on and so forth. There are factions and uh, party spiritedness and splits and so on. Now these are exactly the same issues that he had been talking to them about in chapter 1. If you have a look back at chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. My brothers, he says, some of them from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, 
One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Very super spiritual one, that last group. But now he's saying exactly the same thing. One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not acting like mere human beings? If you have the NIV, you can even see exactly the same um, little interpolated paragraph heading above chapter 1 verse 10 and above chapter 3 on divisions in the church. Paul has actually been dealing with strife and clash and quarrel within the church at Corinth from the beginning of the book. Do you think people could ever quarrel in a church. I mean, could preachers get jealous of each other? No, surely not in a church like ours. You, you couldn't ever, could you, have musicians falling out with each other? I'm looking to my left. <laughs> it doesn't happen, does it? Jealousies. And people preferring different people. I am of Mendelssohn, I am of Bach. I mean, let me not go any closer to home than that. <laughs> they played me in the 19th century. <laughs> or could you have jealousies between youth group leaders? So that one group is showing more signs of growing or a better program or something else than another. Mm -hmm. These things surely are possible, aren't they? Or there can be people who are perceived to have influence in a church. And they can get jealous of each other. What was happening apparently in Corinth is that people were grouping around their favourite um, apostles or leaders or preachers. I am a Paul. I mean, he was the one that had come and brought the gospel in the first place. He was perhaps the one that had led many of the founders of that church to Christ. I am of Apollos. Now, he was a, he was a brilliant, silver-tongued speaker. All the arts of Greek oratory, and they loved listening to him. He, he, was, he was my number one. Well, then there was Cephas, Peter. He perhaps represented more the old, more traditional, rooted in the Old Testament Jewish way of going on about things. And you can see how within Corinth, you imagine, you see, probably no house group, small church with more than 40 or 50 people, that would be the most you could get into one of these um, first century houses. And dotted around Corinth, there would have been these small house churches that would have together made up the church in Corinth to whom the, this letter was addressed. And they were starting to fall out with each other. There were abrasions, they had their favourites, there were, there were quarrels and splits and so on coming in. They were dividing in jealousy over different cultural backgrounds and styles of doing stuff. And so Paul says uh, there between verses 5 and 9, he said, look, friends, Paul and Apollos, take them, who are we? We're only God's servants. We only get to do what God gave us to do. We're not special. There's a difference. One plants, another waters. Who's the one that makes the seed grow? God. 
God who does any work that's worth doing. It's not the talent of one in person as over against another. Let not the youth leaders or the elders or the musicians or the preachers start falling out as if they had some particular ability not given by God. You just do what God gives you to do and it is God that gives the increase. Look, my dear Corinthian friends, he says, accept us merely as servants of God. Down the centuries, churches have split, sometimes along family lines, sometimes along particular strong personalities. Whole denominations have splintered. Friendships have been broken. To prove it, let me ask, how many of you here have actually lived through something like a church split? Hands up. Oh, just get hands up. Just look around. That is, that is quite a proportion of us have lived through this. And so it's no wonder that Paul the Apostle, our Apostle, the Apostle to the Gentiles, goes from chapter 1 verse 10 right through to chapter 4 verse 21, bringing various arguments to bear on precisely this kind of problem. It, it's fascinating to watch him going to work, to see a working Apostle on the job dealing with disunity and splits, this sort of childishness, this worldliness, this um, thinking about these kinds of things to do with the church in a way that is no higher than if you were just a member of some social club. Before I ask you some more questions, let me run you through the kind of arguments that he brings um, to bear. In verses... Um, 13 to 17 of chapter 1, Paul says, look, all this name-taking, I am of this and I am of that, you are undermining the glory of Christ. You are exalting this person's name. Can I ask you, who is your saviour? The Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. And some people will stand up and declare that they are Lutherans, or they are Calvinists, or they are Wesleyans, or they'll make great play out of some other human name and exalt that above the name of Jesus. Is it not enough for us to be Christian? And if people then want to push you into a little corner, how about what kind of a Christian? Don't go into the corner. I mean, let me use a silly illustration. I think I may have used it here before. Um, let us imagine when goes over to America. He falls in love. Can you imagine that? <laughs> he actually is introduced to the most marvellous woman in the world. He's introduced to her in Mr. and Mrs. Brown's house. He meets this girl, let's, shall we say, that... Um, She's called Smith. This is not taxing your brains, is it? <laughs> now, after a bit, this um, Miss Smith becomes Mrs. Samuel. But she doesn't like 
I mean, she's heard of various Samuels around the world. There's a patch of them down in the south coast. There's a number in Israel. There's, I mean, some of them you wouldn't want to be associated with, would you? And so she starts taking to herself the name Brown Samuel, because that's where she met him. She becomes Mrs. Brown Samuel, just to distinguish herself from all the other Samuels, because she knows of some of the other relatives and in-laws and, and, and doesn't want to be associated with them. That is what has happened down through the history of the church. People have taken smaller names themselves to cut themselves off from other Christians because they look down on them. And Paul says, look, anything like that, this taking name business, is undermining the glory of Christ. The second um, reason he puts forward for avoiding this, he says, look, you're opposing God's deliberate strategy in the gospel. It is the cross that saves people. Hmm? It is not people's intelligence or wisdom, not their miracles, not their pedigree. He's gone all the way through that in those verses. It is the cross that saves people and the cross that goes on saving us. Because what is it that will stop you getting up on your high horse and thinking you're so much better than other people? It's the cross, isn't it? That other brother or sister in the church who you have a tendency to look down on, how were they saved? Same way as you? Mm. Do you have any right to exalt yourself? The cross is not only the way in which we come to a, an understanding, a little bit of a grasp of God's grace and love and acceptance of us, it's the way in which he goes on saving us in our character. This is why he brings us back here, week by week, that we can remember, I am saved in exactly the same way as the person sitting beside me. And the person preaching and the person playing the piano, etc. So when you exalt yourself and set up splat, uh, splits and factions and these kind of things, splats and fictions, I was going to say, You are actually undermining God's way of saving us. And then, from verses 6 to 16 of chapter 2, he says, and we had this last week, he says, look, you're ignoring also the way in which the Holy Spirit actually works. God's wisdom doesn't come to some of you because you're particularly wise. God's wisdom is revealed from above to those who have received the Holy Spirit, which they didn't deserve. Not a matter of being one of the world's wise ones. <laughs> Look at this Paul, and you can see it in those verses, we looked at it last week. Consider some of the, the great ones of this age. <laughs> there was a point when they had the very Son of God in front of them, and they didn't recognize him. Herod and Caiaphas and Pilate, could they spot the Son of God when he was standing not three yards from them? No, they couldn't because it hadn't been revealed to them. If they'd seen it, they wouldn't have crucified him. The great ones, the wise ones, are as thick as two short planks when it comes to spiritual things. So if you start setting one person up over against another on merely human grounds, you are ignoring the way in which the Holy Spirit works. And now we come um, today to a fourth pressure that he brings to bear on them for them to behave properly. He said, look, dear Corinthians, if you go on like this, 
being quarrelsome, being superior, being arrogant. What you're doing is you are in danger of destroying your own reward as a Christian. That's from verses 10 down to the end of the chapter. Now it says, look, let me remind you, I laid a foundation in Corinth. I came, I preached the gospel. What did I do? I laid a, the foundation of the church. It was like, how did I do it? I preached Christ. That foundation is laid, which is Christ. I preached the gospel. Verse 11, Jesus is the foundation. No one can lay any other foundation that's been done than that which is already laid, it is Jesus Christ. Now, other people are building on the foundation that I laid. He preached in whatever year it was, 57, 54, I don't know, AD. Foundation laid. And then along came Apollos, and along came others. And as the years have gone by, in Salterford Evangelical Church, along have come different folk, building on the foundation that has already been laid. Now, what do you bring into the church? This is a critical issue. What is it that you are contributing, month by month, year by year, to the life, the beauty, the stability, the growth, the quality of the church? You see, he says, look, on the one hand, people can be building on that foundation of Jesus with gold, with silver, with precious stones, or at the other end, with wood, or hay, or straw. In other words, that which is lasting, attractive, not necessarily easily obtained. You may have to spend some time mining and digging and working at the gold. You don't find a lot of gold lying around in Warwick Park, do you? All people can be building into the church that which is cheap, poor quality, rotting. That idea was the idea that really gripped me years ago. Because we read here that there's going to be an evaluation. When the quality, gold or straw or what in between, are what we have contributed to the church of which we are part, is going to be evaluated by the Lord Jesus himself. What was he talking about? You tell me. Give me some examples. What kind of thing is, is he talking about? I'll give you the quality of your witness to, to friends in the neighborhood district. Mm -hmm. And as a whole church, and your contribution to that, what does the church look like and sound like in the neighborhood? Mm -hmm. Yes, good. Other things? Yes, if you're actually destroying people, discouraging them, driving them away, you haven't been building with gold and silver, have you? That which is going to be attractive and gleaming in the, in the sunlight. Uh -huh. 
What would be a gold quality Sunday school teacher? As opposed to a straw quality. Cares for them, prays for them personally. Mm-hmm. Fully committed to being there and preparing so that what they get taught is is good stuff and not just sort of the back of an envelope over breakfast that morning. Mm-hmm. So the kids who are very quick at seeing disparity can know that when you talk about love, you love them, etc. Body receives the thanks from God and of the and they'd be working for God's approval. Yes. What would be um, stubble and straw quality preaching? Tell me, tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Warmed up, yesterday's porridge, badly prepared, little thought, self-glorifying, well, you spend half the time just talking about yourself. Yes? Merely telling people what they want to hear rather than what you are responsible to pass on from the Word of God. Error. Yeah. Mere speculation, rumor, claptrap rather than what God has said. Not being open to what you Yourself. That would be, that's another version of what we were thinking about earlier, the Sunday school thing, yes. The, um, say it and then, yes, live as if it had never had anything more to do with you until the next time you had to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In verse 13, he talks about, um, the evaluation. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It's a little bit like, I, I sometimes think this is like the apostolic version of the story of the three little pigs, do you know? <laughs> Does that help you remember it? You know, how they, one built with brick, and one built with wood, and one built with straw. It always struck me like that, but the, the analogy, you can't press it too much further, because I wouldn't want to make the judgment day being the wolf coming. But that's an important point to get hold of because um, the evaluation that will come for us at the end of time is not designed to be threatening and fearful. The scriptures say that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We are not going to be judged and cast out. Look at verse 15. If a person's work is built up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. We're not talking about the loss of your salvation. What we're talking about is the loss of reward. Earlier in our chapter, Paul has been talking about people receiving reward for the quality of the work that they do. Turn for a moment over to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 and just see another sentence on this same thing. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 We must all 
appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Saved by grace, but judged by works. Both are true of biblical Christianity. We are saved from God's wrath and destruction, from hell, from eternal lostness, by the grace of God. Then God gives us his spirit, a clean start, his word, his promises, so many things. 2 Peter talks about the eternal promises by means of which we become even partakers in the divine nature. And then immediately he goes on, so now, add to your faith, goodness, virtue, and so on, and a whole long list. And we will be evaluated at the end of time according to our opportunities and our abilities and our circumstances. Was it Bob some weeks ago who had that little phrase about how at the end um, will the Lord say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, or just well? It wasn't you. <laughs> it struck me as the kind of thing you would have said so I I don't doubt that for a moment <laughs> what is this reward that is spoken of if what he has built verse 14 survives he will receive his reward Earlier in verse 8, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. What might this reward be? I I'm not sure. I mean, there isn't any right answer to this one. I've got one or two vague notions, but I'd like to hear from you. Uh, yes, go on, Pete. The talents that the Lord spoke about, he gave, um, a certain number of cities. That has always struck me as being more than a mere sort of fanciful and imaginative way of saying that there's going to be reward. It seems to me that from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Life has been about training in government, in responsibility. We will come to this a little bit more later on in 1 Corinthians. I don't think that God has any intention other than to, for a time, so govern this world as it should be governed, and to incorporate his children in that reigning, responsible management leadership process. This business about having responsibility over cities is going to prove to be far more accurate than we think. Do you ever, as you stroll around Warwick and Leamington, wonder if you were under God in charge of this place, what would you do? What would you aim at? 
Abraham from the very beginning has been said by the scriptures as he wanders around, lives in tents, humps around on the backs of camels, that he was looking for a city which had proper foundations. The cities that he came out of really had no moral and spiritual foundations at all. They may have been great big cities, came from the area of Babylon and so on, but they had no moral and spiritual foundations. He was looking for a city that had. And isn't that the problem in, in British society at the moment? The crumbling of our moral and spiritual foundations. You build fine buildings and organize big football tournaments, etc. Frighten, you know, people overseas by threatening them with this and that and other. But the moral and spiritual foundations of how people relate to each other, how they respect each other, where they, they have any time for God, that is not there. And we need to begin to think, uh, initially at the level of our family, our church, our community, what will it mean to reign with Christ in the long run? Now, we may well be onto something there. This city thing. And some will have more responsibility than others. Any other ideas that have appealed to you as you think about the reward that is coming? Uh -huh. There do seem to be higher and lower places in the kingdom, don't there? Come up higher, brother, that, that kind of idea. I, how that's going to work out, I don't know. I find it very... It, it, it bends my imagination out of shape. But something like that is spoken about. Mm -hmm. Any other contributions? Then let me move on to another question. What effect does all this have upon you? Be very honest. It's not as motivating as it should be. This, of course, is the point of coming back to the scriptures to be reminded of things that we forget. Does it produce any questions in your mind? Trish said to me, when I said to her, uh, I'm going to try a more discussional approach tonight. Oh, she said, be very careful. She said, end of a long day, they'll be tired, that you won't get much out of them. Just begun to wonder whether I've reached the stage of the evening where she's right. There is a source here, I think, as we ponder it, of very secure motivation as a Christian. It is not designed to induce fear. God is very understanding of us. But we know that there is going to come a time when he will evaluate and reward. He will recognize our service, even under quite difficult circumstances. And will publicly acknowledge what we have done with the gifts and the opportunities that he has given to us. Hmm. In that last one, see, the respect that Barnes claims isn't there whether you actually using the kids. I just said it was easier to go, or if you're a full fighter actress or something, and working a depicted of a lot of Dalian difference. Yeah. I mean, that's doing it. 
Yes, and it, it would be very easy, wouldn't it, for those who apparently have lots of opportunities to do public things, to fancy themselves rotten. Which I think is why he goes on to say, uh, don't deceive yourselves. In verse 18, just think very straight about this. If the church is the temple of God, as he's been saying in the two previous verses, don't you know that the that you are God's temple? God's spirit lives in you. The kind of contribution which anybody can make to a breaking of bread meeting, to a prayer care group, to the attitudes and the course and the direction being set just by being wholehearted in, in serving the Lord. Those kinds of contributions are just as valuable, if not more valuable, than some of the uh, talkative ones at the front. And the Lord knows how to, how to make adjustments. I fancy there's going to be many gifted public Christians who find that the Lord's evaluation of them considerably scales down what they have thought of themselves. Yes. We need to give time to um, pondering this gratefully, um, thankfully before the Lord. Don't you know that you are God's temple? God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple by what he builds or what he introduces into the church, serious, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Let's gather around this table with great gratitude to a Lord who loves us. But he hasn't appointed us to service without also intending to come and evaluate and give praise where praise is due. He has given his word and his spirit to encourage. We can ask him as we sit around, Lord, may our contribution be gold and silver and and precious stones, that end of the market. Those are the materials that you made temples out of. You made them out of marble and granite and you adorned them with gold. That's appropriate for the house of God. You made your own little private house out of wood, a bit of straw for the, the thatch, a bit of mud mixed up with straw for the walls. No, this is the, the house of God that we're concerned about. Let us build appropriately. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.